Shalom and welcome to the Jewish Mind, where the growth of modernity meets the timeless wisdom and solutions of Judaism. Faith teaches us that everything that happens is for the good, even when we are suffering. The Talmud states, Just as one blesses God for the good experiences that happen in their life, so too one must bless for the bad. This ruling means that one must receive suffering with joy. The reason for this is that ultimately faith dictates that God is good and that everything which God does is for the good. However, the Talmud goes on to tell us that there is a different blessing made for when we have a good experience happen to us than the blessing we make when we have a bad experience happen to us. For the good experience we say, blessed be who is good and does good. While for a bad experience we say, blessed be the true judge. Thus, even though our faith teaches us to accept suffering with joy, just as we accept good occasions with joy, however, good occasions are sweet, while bad occasions remain bitter. Is there then a way through which to transform the very bitterness of suffering into the sweetness of goodness? <coughs> Excuse me. In the, books of, in the book of Exodus, we are told of how the Jewish people in the desert arrived at waters which were too bitter to drink. Moses prayed to God, and God taught Moses how to transform the bitter waters into sweet waters. Can we too perform this transformation? In this lecture, through studying the Rebbe's mystical teachings upon this week's reading of the laws of the Para Aduma, Red Cow, we will learn how to do more than just accept suffering with joy, and how to reveal the sweet waters within the bitter waters in life. This week we read from two Sifre Torah, two Sifre Torah scrolls, two Torah scrolls. In the first we read the weekly portion from the annual cycle called Kitisa. From the second Sefer Torah, we read a special portion called Para, which means cow, which is about the laws of the red cow. In the laws of impurity, there are different categories, of which some just demand that one stay out of the Bet HaMikdash, the holy temple, for the duration of his impurity, which usually is until he or she immerses in the mikvah waters, and then until sunsets. However, the stricter category demands the para aduma procedure, which involves the ashes of a completely red cow without even two non-red hairs. It was a seven-day procedure in which the waters with the ashes of the para aduma were sprinkled upon the impure person on the third day and the seventh day of the cleansing process. The laws concerning the para aduma are found in the Book of Numbers, chapter 19. What is the strictest category of impurity? It is when a person comes in contact with a dead corpse. You will remember that in the book of Genesis, God told Adam that if he eats from the forbidden tree of knowledge, he would die. Death is the ultimate embodiment of impurity and sin. Life is the ultimate expression of goodness and godliness. Thus, the impurity that comes from being in contact with a dead corpse is, spiritually speaking, the ultimate embodiment of impurity. When God on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights taught Moses the Torah, God taught Moses all the different types of impurity and how one is purified of them. When it came to the category of the dead corpse, Moses asked God, what is the purification process for this impurity? God remained silent and Moses' face darkened. 
It wasn't until they reached the laws of the Paraduma that God told Moses that this is the purification process for the impurity of the dead corpse. And Moses asked, this is purification process? To which God answered, so have I decreed it as a statute. Thus the portion of the Paraduma begins with, this is the statute of. Unlike a mishpat mitzvah, which is logical, and we are given permission to ponder their meaning and purpose, concerning the chukah mitzvot, we are told, so it has been decreed by me, capital M, and you have no permission to ponder it. Specifically concerning this chukah mitzvah of the paraduma, King Solomon, the wisest of all men, said, I have wisened, and yet she has remained distant from me. Thus the truest powers of the paraduma are superior to logic and imbues all of the Torah with the mandate of na'aseh vinishma, first na'aseh and then vinishma, which ultimately means that the foundation of our acceptance and relationship with all of the Torah wisdom and its 630 commandments are based upon faith and acceptance, from which we then align our minds and hearts to absorb Torah and mitzvot. An interesting question concerning the laws of the Paraduma is that God commands, and they shall take unto you, Moses. However, the procedure was performed by Moses' brother's family, Aaron and his sons, the Kohanim, the priests. So why bring the Paraduma to Moses? Rashi, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, explains this. And he says, and have them take for you, that's the quote he pulls out of the verse, and he comments, it will always be called on your name, the cow which Moses prepared in the desert. Mystically speaking, this means that the Torah, that the power of the purification of the paraduma process is dependent on the paraduma being called by the name of Moses, meaning that it must be empowered specifically by Moses. What is the secret behind this? This year we are reading the portion of Paraduma on the same Shabbat on which we are reading the weekly Parsha of Kitisa, which tells the story of the Jewish people making the golden calf. There is a huge connection between the two. I mentioned earlier the story of the bitter waters. Our sages tell us that when Moses encountered the bitter waters, he questioned as to what purpose do such waters exist. God told Moses, do not speak as such. Are they not the work of my hand? Is there anything in the world that was created for no purpose? Rather, say, make the bitter sweet. And so it was when God wanted to annihilate the Jewish people after the sin of the golden calf, Moses said to God, God, did you not teach me at the bitter waters to pray that you sweeten the bitter? So now I ask of you, God, transform the bitterness of the sinners into sweetness. This is what the Zohar speaks of when it, when it says concerning he who transforms darkness into light and bitterness into sweetness. This is the secret of the Paraduma, which purifies the impure. Now at first hand, it seems to be just poetic that the Zohar says both darkness into light and bitter into sweetness. However, in fact, the Zohar is being quite precise speaking of two different transformations that take place. One is from darkness into light, and the second is bitter into sweetness. Let us explore this. What exactly is darkness, and what is transformation of darkness into light? 
In Kabbalah and Hasidus, we refer to the process of creation as the process of yesh me'ayin, which in Latin means ex nihilo, which means the process of creating something out of nothing. However, the terminology here is bewildering. First it was God, and God created the universe. How then can we say something out of nothing, in which we are calling God nothing and the universe something? God, and only God, is the true something. The answer is that God created the universe through the element of concealment, darkness, in which God is hidden from the universe. Therefore, to the naked eye, or shall we say, to the naked mind, what we see is the universe as an existing, definable something, while to our naked minds, God is an elusive, abstract, undefinable nothingness. This is why during the process of creation in the book of Genesis, we only find the name Elohim. The name Elohim of God is the only name of God which is used as plural with the suffix im at the end, which is masculine plural. The name Elohim is the name of God which is the manifestation of concealment and thus lacks in the oneness and talks of the complexity. This is why all of creation was created in a spiritual state of darkness which simply means void of the revelation of God's existence and any consciousness of God's existence. It was only on the sixth day of creation when God created Adam and Eve with a soul of which it is said the candle of God is the soul of man that Adam turned to all of creation and said come let us bow prostrate and bless before God our maker. Thus God precisely created the universe in a state of darkness so that mankind can come along and transform darkness into light, becoming the builders of God's abode, transforming the physical world of darkness into a holy temple of light. However, how can mankind, a physical creation of darkness, transform darkness into light? The answer is that God breathed into the human being's body of darkness a soul of light, a soul which is the candle of God, and the power of a candle is to bring light into an environment of darkness. However, this question still begs understanding. How can we change what God created? Our power to illuminate darkness comes from another verse, You are my candle, God. What this means is that the power that a Jew has to tr transform darkness into light comes from God being our candle. This refers to God giving us His commandments, which are a way of life and light. Thus, the potential to transform darkness into light comes to us from God through God's commandments. However, the actual transformation from darkness to light comes from our actual physical observance of the commandments through which we transform physical objects of darkness into holy objects of light. This is the simple process of He who transforms darkness into light. Now let us explore the more complex process of transforming bitterness into sweetness. While we explain the transformation from darkness to light as the physical performance of mitzvot, the transformation from bitter to sweet is all about doing teshuvah, repentance, returning. With through tshuva, even intentionally committed sins are transformed for him into merits. In other words, the transformation from darkness to light is the original purpose of creation, 
to make from this physical world of darkness an abode of light for God. There is nothing bitter about this process. However, the transformation from bitter to sweet was brought about by the sin of mankind which created a bitterness, which now needs to be also transformed into sweetness through mankind doing teshuva, rectifying his sins, and not only rectifying, but transforming the very bitterness of his past sins into a great sweetness of the present. The sages speak of how suffering cleanses sins and is part of the teshuva process. However, this is not done by us bringing upon ourselves, God forbid, suffering, but of God polishing us after our initial acts of teshuva, bringing us to a brilliant shine. The process of suffering cleanses sins works through the person accepting his suffering with joy. Let us understand how this works on a practical and on a mystical level. On a practical level, it is through the knowledge that God has accepted our action of teshuva and is therefore giving us the opportunity to be polished. And thus, the experience is not about retribution from God as much as it is about God's allowing us to grow even brighter and sweeter from our past bitterness, since we have embraced the process of teshuva. Kind of like a doctor telling the person after a heart procedure that he has to go to the gym every day and work out to lose the extra weight and to build up his cardiovascular. It isn't fun, but it is the act of bringing longevity, health, and a clear mind and heart free from stress and toxins. This we can accept with joy. Now let us look at accepting suffering with joy from a mystical perspective. To understand this, we will first turn to a verse that states in Zechariah, On that day God will be one and His name one. To fully appreciate what the verse is saying, I want to share with you the Hebrew wording of the verse, Bayom hahu yiyeh. The word for will be is yiyeh, which is spelled yud hey yud hey. The ineffable tetragrammaton name of God is spelled yud hey vav hey, which differs from the word yiyeh in only that the third letter is a vav instead of a yud. Thus, the word yiyeh is made up of twice yud hey while God's name is a yud hey and a vav hey, The letters yud hey in themselves is a name of God, as you know from the word hallelujah, which is really hallelujah, praise, and then yud hey, God. Thus, according to Kabbalah and Hasidus, what Zechariah is telling us in the verse is that today the name of God is not one, for the last two letters, which is the lower dimension of God's name, is not one with the higher dimension of God's name, which are the first two letters. They're different. The first two letters are a yud hey, the last two letters are a he, a vav hey. However, when Mashiach comes, on that day God's name will be one, for the last two letters will be of equal revelation to the first two letters, for it will be as yihyeh, yud hey, and yud hey. What does this all have to do with our exploration of accepting suffering with joy, in order to transform bitterness into sweetness? For this we need to understand why is God's name presently not one? There was something different that happened when God created light than when God created all of the rest of the universe. Concerning the creation of light, the verse states, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Concerning all the other creations, the verse tells us what God said, and then the verse says, And it was so. Why then by the creation of light does it say, And there was light, and not the uniform terminology of, And it was so. 
The answer is that the light that we experience today is not the light that God created. We are taught that God saw that the light was too strong for us to be able to absorb in a constructive manner, and therefore God placed the sun in a casing, so that the light's power would be hidden. When Mashiach comes and the world will be pure and good, then God will take the sun back out of its casing, for we will then be capable to absorb the great light in a, in a constructive manner. In Kabbalah and Hasidus, the first two letters of God's name, the yud Hey, represents the hidden worlds in which the greater hidden light shines while the last two letters of God's name, the vav represents the revealed world, which presently only absorbs the revealed light that shines through the casing around the sun. However, when Mashiach comes and God will take the sun out of the casing, then we will have the oneness of God's name. And in the revealed worlds of the vav we will have the hidden light of the yud Hey. Nu, so what do we now understand from all of this? In God there is no bitterness, and from God comes no bitterness and suffering. God is good, and all that God does is sweet. If so, then why do we experience suffering and bitterness in our lives? That which we experience as suffering is actually the stronger and greater goodness from the hidden world, and therefore being so strong, we experience it as suffering. For the simple example, Looking up into the powerful sunlight is painful for our eyes and, we will a- and will actually cause our eyes to see black and dark spots. But let us drive the example of a hidden goodness home a little deeper. It takes a strong love and kindness to bring up our children, to put them through higher education and to help them set themselves up. However, it takes a far stronger love and goodness for a parent to overcome their natural inclination for their children and to exhibit what is called tough love in order for their addict child to be able to hit their rock bottom so that the child will finally reach out for help and recovery. The natural revealed love cannot overcome natural instincts of a parent and only the superior hidden love can empower a parent to cry themselves to sleep in prayer and pain every night as they act in tough love for the good of their child. The child only experiences pain and suffering in their parents' behavior. The child feels unloved and victimized. Only after the child, by the grace of God, recovers from addiction and begins to live a recovered life, can they then see the superior love that it took for their parents to shine upon them the hidden light, the love of the hidden world from the hidden depths of their heart for their child. And so it is with God's love for us. When we become addicted to egocentric, narcissistic, self-seeking grandiose, it is of a far greater love of God for us that shines when God cleanses us from our sins. It is the hidden love of the hidden light which presently only shines as light in the hidden worlds. However, in the revealed worlds, this hidden love is most often experienced as pain, suffering, victimhood, and abandonment. And thus the act of teshuva in this is to accept the suffering with joy, knowing that in essence it is a greater love and kindness of God from the hidden love in the hidden worlds of the hidden light. This acceptance and suffering with joy, however, doesn't change our experience of suffering. 
We are suffering, only that we are suffering with joy. Can we, however, transform the experience to be a sweet experience rather than a bitter experience accepted with joy? Our sages of mysticism teach us that within each and every Jew there is a hidden love for God through which we overcome all external desires and fears. However, upon this hidden love, within the depths of our heart, lay layers and layers of concealment of ego, justification, self-seeking, and dishonesty. Thus King Solomon in his book of songs, Shir HaShirim, speaks of the Jews' prayer before God. Here's the verse. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where do you feed? Where do you rest the flocks at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself behind the flocks of your companions? That's the verse in Shira Shirim, the book of songs. In order to better understand this verse, let me share with you Rashi's commentary on the verse. First Rashi quotes the words from the verse, Tell me you whom my soul loves. The Divine Spirit repeatedly compares her to the flock that is beloved to the shepherd. The congregation of Israel says before him, God, as a woman to her husband, Tell me, you, God, whom my soul loves, where do you feed your flock amongst these wolves in whose midst they are? And where do you rest them at noon in this exile, which is a distressful time for them, like noon, which is a distressful time for the flock? That's the first Rashi. Here's the second Rashi and the verse. It quotes the words, For why should I be like one who veils herself? And if you ask, the Jew is telling God, and if you, God, ask, what does it concern you? It is not dignified for you, God, that I should be like a mourner with a veil over my lip, weeping for my flock. According to mystical interpretation, the deeper meaning behind the word for tell me, that's how the verse starts, right? Tell me is the soul's beseeching before God to draw upon me. The verse is speaking of how the soul cries before God, that God free its hidden love, for God its casing, from its ca I'm sorry, to, that God free its hidden love from its casing of layers and layers of our ego's opaqueness. However, I want to point out to you the secret of what King Solomon is truly saying. Refer please to the second Rashi that I quoted to you. And if you, God, ask, what does it concern me? Now listen to what we answer to God. It is not dignified for you, God, that I should be like a mourner. This is the key to breaking the casing around our hidden love which in turn breaks the casing around the hidden light of the hidden world, so that the hidden light be experienced as revealed sweetness and not as bitterness. It is only through being able to completely set ourselves aside, and that our prayer that God's hidden light for us be experienced as revealed sweetness be because of God's dignity, as perceived by all who see the state of, God, of being of God's children. This absolute selflessness is the absolute tshuva through which bitterness is transformed to sweetness. This selflessness is what brings Mashiach and oneness to God's name here in the physical revealed world. So let me recap what we're saying here. The secret to be able to break the casing around the hidden light 
so that it be experienced to us in the revealed world as revealed sweetness is being able to have absolute selflessness that when we pray to God for sweetness, it not be about our self-seeking, but about God's dignity, that the world see that God's children live in revealed sweetness. That isn't easy. Now we can understand the mystical secret behind, and they shall take unto you Moses, which Rashi explained that forever the paraduma is called as Moses' paraduma. And as we explained that what this mystically means is that only when the para-aduma process is empowered by Moses can it purify the impure and transform the, transform the bitter into sweet. Many righteous people were able to embrace the epitome of accepting suffering with joy through deep concentration and meditation upon the truism that the source of suffering comes from a higher hidden good. However, they do not reach the point of a Mashiach experience in not experiencing the bitterness and to experience its hidden goodness as sweetness. Let me share with you two stories in the Talmud. One of a sage known as Nachum Ish Gamzu and the other of Rabbi Akiva. Nachum Ish Gamzu received his name because he would say, this too is for the good, Gamzu Litova. So Nachum was his name and the words Ish Gamzu means the man of this too, because he would always say, this too is for the good. Rabbi Kiva, on the other hand, would say, all that God does for the good, he does it. The difference between the two is that Nachum was saying that this too is right now good, while Rabbi Kiva was speaking of the future, that everything that God does, even though now it is painful and bitter, is all for the future good. So now let's see the story that happened with Rab Nachum and the story that happened with Rabbi Akiva. Once when the king placed a decree against the Jews, the Jews gathered together a huge sum of money and bought a very expensive diamond as a gift for the king. Being that Nachum was known for experiencing miracles, they appointed him as their messenger to the king. On the journey to the king, as night fell, Nochum Ishgamzu stayed by an inn. The innkeeper, seeing the beautiful box, gift box, snuck into Nochum's room, into the gift box, stole the diamond, and refilled it with sand so that Nochum wouldn't notice a weight change. Nochum appeared before the king, the gift box was opened, and the king, seeing the sand, went into a rage. Nochum's reply? Gamzulatova, this too is for the good. Immediately, Elijah the prophet appeared as one of the advisors of the king and said to the king, The Jewish people are no fools. Definitely there must be a secret to the sand. I recall studying in Genesis that when Abraham went to war against the five kings, he used a miraculous sand, that when Abraham threw it at his enemies, it worked as weapons. This sand which the Jews sent you must be from that magical sand. The king tested the sand on his battlefield and it worked. The king nullified the decree against the Jewish people and Nochum experienced only sweetness. Now for the story of Rabbi Kiva. Rabbi Kiva was traveling by donkey and brought with him a rooster to serve as his alarm clock and a candle so that he can study Torah at night. 
When night fell, Rabbi Kiva went into the closest village and asked to be able to stay overnight. But he was refused. Rabbi Kiva said, All that God does, for the good he does it. Rabbi Kiva went out to the nearby forest, lit his candle, and settled down for a night of study. Along came a wild animal and killed a donkey. And Rabbi Kiva said, All that God does, for the good he does it. Then came a fox and killed a rooster. And Rabbi Kiva said, All that God does, for the good he does it. Suddenly a wind started blowing and the candle kept on going out. Rabbi Kiva said, All that God does, for the good he does it. And he lay down to sleep. The next morning Rabbi Kiva returned to the village and saw that it had been plundered by a band of thieves, killing out the men and robbing all that was there. Rabbi Kiva now realized that God has saved him by not letting him sleep in the village, by killing the donkey and rooster from making any noise, and by blowing out the candle so that he not be noticed by the band of thieves. However, what did Rabbi Akiva experience in his goodness? He slept in the forest, had to now walk for he had no donkey, had no more rooster, and he lost a night of study. Thus, unlike the uniqueness of Nachum Ish Gamzu, who experienced only sweetness, Rabbi Akiva, while accepting all the suffering with joy, experienced the suffering. This is why the Paraduma process must be powered, empowered by Moses, who lived completely within the presence and consciousness of the higher name of God, the totality of the yud Hey. And only this empowerment allows for the Paraduma process to completely work, in which we do not only accept the suffering of our cleansing with joy, but even the depths of all impurity, that of a dead corpse, becomes transformed into sweetness to the ultimate experience of life, light, and revealed sweetness. Moses was empowered by our patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were total selfless chariots to the will of God. How actually, however, the actual transformation from the bitterness of sin to the purification and meritorious sweetness of light happens through Moses. In closing, the Jewish people at large have been molded through exile, suffering, and the gift of survival. However, this mindset has embedded deep within our genes this perverse need for suffering. We so quickly embrace suffering with assigning it to kapara, atonement. There seems to exist among us some perverse joy and gratification in our suffering. What this mimer of the Rebbe is teaching us is that we must let go of that perverse delight in suffering and in its place to fully open ourselves up to experiencing a revealed sweetness of God's grace and goodness. But how does one truly change a paradigm of two millenniums of our people and of the experiences of our people in exile? The answer lay in the secret we revealed within King Solomon's statement. You see, when we pray for a goodness that we desire for ourselves, then we ultimately are plagued by our conscious, our conscious questioning us whether we believe that we truly deserve only sweet goodness without any bitter experiences attached to it. That's what happens when we pray for ourselves. However, when we shift our paradigm from what we want for our own selfish reasons and we begin to pray for the dignity of God that lies within us, then we can truly let go of any guilt and shame that are attached to our past because it isn't about us anymore. 
At first, we do this as lip service in the mindset of fake it until you make it over and over again. Little by slowly, eventually, the words of our lips, the selfless words of our lips, penetrate our minds and our hearts as we begin to truly pray for God's dignity. This opens us up to already experience our connection with Moses as we begin to feel and taste the sweet fragrance of Mashiach. May he come now speedily in our days. Friends, modernity offers growth and growth comes with challenges. Judaism offers timeless divine solutions. Here at the Jewish mind is where modernity meets Judaism.